That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Lynn Paramore is writing over at the Institute for New Economic Thinking about economic despair and how it affects you know, humans and societies. She points out that in 2015, this is long before the pandemic, in 2015, life expectancy in America dropped for the first time in, in 100 years. It dropped again in 2016. Life expectancy had dropped again in 2017. And during that same period of time, life expectancy for people in the top 1% increased 140% faster than those in low-income groups. This makes us an absolute outlier among nations. Meanwhile, sociologist Shannon Monnet at Syracuse University was looking at which communities were being ravaged by opioids. And what she found was that it wasn't, it had nothing to do with how many drug representatives came to town or, or uh, you know, how, how many pharmacies there were or doctors there were. It had to do with inequality, communities that were highly unequal, not poor, but highly unequal. I mean, poverty often went along with it, were more likely to have horrible opioid addiction epidemics. And she says, in communities with more economic stability, a strong safety net, and better quality jobs, fewer people were dying from opioids. What does despair and specifically economic despair how has that changed history over the centuries professor richard wolf is with us the economist co-founder of democracy at work.info author of numerous books his most recent the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself rd wolf uh, with two fs.com as well and, and prof wolf with two fs is his twitter handle uh, professor wolf your thoughts on this well, I think it's a warning sign, and it's a, something we better heed, that the despair is the forerunner of the political explosion. In other words, it's a way of understanding that your situation is becoming untenable. Inequality is not an arrangement that in the long run is tenable. If the majority of people are more and more squeezed, as they are, and as they have been for the last 50 years in our country, at the same time that immense wealth is immediately visible in the same community, or at least on the same TV set or internet screen, you're going to create tensions, bitterness, envy, and despair. 
and the signs of despair are everywhere. The Case Deaton work that Paramore signs is the famous work of the two folks at Princeton that is now globally studied, and now Shannon Monat's work at Syracuse. These are documentations based on systematic statistics. We ought to learn the lesson. And in answer to your question about history, it's been a clear lesson to learn. The despair, for example, if you read Charles Dickens's famous book, The Tale of Two Cities, London and Paris, the descriptions there of the despair, both in Paris and in London, were the forerunners of explosive changes in those societies. Ultimately, the French Revolution, with its guillotines, with its end of feudalism, these are historic changes. And I think we're going through it now as well, that the COVID is a kind of uh, extra whack on us. But we were already suffering, as the work you cited shows, opioids and all the other signs of deaths by despair. If we do not deal with these despairing issues in some rational way, they are going to lead to political explosions that will be accompanied by big, sudden, difficult changes, violence, and all the rest that has followed when these kinds of signs have not been heeded. In your mind, would it be, or opinion, would it be accurate to say that the Trump phenomena is an outgrowth of the economic despair produced by, you know, 40, 50 years of neoliberalism, or what I call Reaganism? I have no doubt at all about it. And I would use the example that I think is the one most likely to be in people's minds. Over the period from 1914... Uh, to 1933, that's not a very long number of years, under two decades, the people of a very prosperous country, Germany, went from being at the top of the world, along with the British and the United States, the most successful economies. But in those years, from 1914 to 1933, they were destroyed. First World War One, they lost. Then the worst inflation uh, in Western history in 1923 wiped out all the savings of the middle class. And then when the Great Depression hit in 1929, it was one blow too many. Lost war, inflation, basic crash. They went, and I, I say this advisedly, they went crazy as a people, not just with despair, but with a kind of hopelessness and desperation that made it possible for an opportunistic politician to see an unbelievable chance. Coming up with the kinds of conspiracy theories we have seen again in the Trump administration, there was this little fellow from Austria, Austria dark-haired, short, celebrating something he wasn't, namely Aryan, tall, blue-eyed Germans, and he built a Nazi movement based on speaking to that despair that other political parties were not able to do, with the exception of the far left. That was his real counterpoint. We've had the same thing without a, a powerful far left, uh, which may be what saved us. Who knows? But uh, yes, I think that the Trump is a symptom 
um, as are uh, the folks who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. They're a, sim- a symptom of a despair. Uh, we never know in advance when the system creates a despair what direction, political direction, the despair will take. It can go to the left. That's kind of what happened in the 1930s. Or it can go to the right. And that's what happened with Mr. Trump. And it now remains to be seen whether people will understand this message of despair or whether we will all be watching, wondering which way it will go this time. Well, and, and to that point, Democrats are now talking about this $1,400 you know, one-time payment that everybody's going to get, about means testing it, uh, turning it into a welfare program. You know, We've successfully resisted means testing Social Security, although Republicans have been calling for that for 50 years. What are your thoughts on that? I am very, very depressed about it, to be honest with you. This is nickel and diming at a time when we cannot afford to do this. We are now going through one of the worst depressions in American history. I would argue it's the worst. Yes, the Great Depression of the 30s was technically worst, but that one didn't happen together with a public health catastrophe. This one is. And the combination of public health catastrophe and capitalist crash, that's a one-two punch this country has to come to terms with. It needs a radical program of relief far beyond what Mr. Biden has proposed, let alone the pared-down version coming from the Republicans. Here's my fear, my great fear, that, that he will make, Mr. Biden will make a compromise, they will cut it down, they will means test it. The end result will be inadequate to what our situation is, and then as that situation deteriorates further, the Republicans, with or without Trump, will turn around and blame the Democrats for it. This is the way American politics works, and it frightens me to death. Yeah, I share your concern, and I think your analysis, prediction, is spot on, because we've seen this over and over and over. We've been seeing this since 1992. Right. That's right. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much. It's always great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Glad to do it. You can find Professor Wolf's work over at democracyatwork.info. His book, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Linda in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind today? Hi, I just wanted to clarify this. This is true related to the Constitution and this elector issue and the problems that people on the right have with how this election happened. So if we look at Article 2 of the Constitution, then um, Section 1, it talks about each state, the states deciding their electors. Well, wasn't, didn't the Supreme Court this summer decide, no, that each state has to go by the popular vote? Well, states' rights is a really big thing in U.S. history, so that could be what the conflict is. And the, if it comes back to the Supreme Court, the current court might say that old decision was unconstitutional, in which case, you know, so people, your listeners aren't, and you aren't realizing that there can be a real constitutional issue here of the state's rights versus the federal court saying you need to do this. 
and states saying we want to do what the Constitution says we can do. So yeah. both sides feeling righteous, not just one side that are mostly Republicans, Trump supporters, I guess we could say, feeling like people are feeling like they are just complete criminals. But actually, just look at that and look at it in terms of states' rights, because and then think in U.S. history how each state wanted their rights because they had different religious philosophies, like the Quakers were very different than the Puritans. Hugely different. Well, women to read the Puritans until the 1830s. So. Right. What the Constitution says when it says the states can decide how their electors will be apportioned, uh, what they're saying essentially is, you know, say a state has 20 electors, let's say a state has 10 electors more commonly, and uh, a state can choose to say, okay, whatever, whichever presidential candidate gets a majority of the vote across our state, they get all 10 electors, and whoever doesn't get the majority of votes gets zero. The state can also say, we're going to divide the state into parts, right? Uh, each congressional district gets to pick the number of electors they have. This is what Nebraska and Maine have done, you know, which gives a slight advantage to the Republicans. Well, actually, it depends on who's in control of which state and which parties. Or a state could say, you know, we have 10 electors and, you know, we're going to say, you know, uh, Joe Blow got 22% and 20% of the vote. So Joe Blow gets two of those electors and, and, uh, and Mary Doe got, uh, you know, 40% of the vote. She gets four of the electors and, and, you know, like that. So that's the concept, right? And that's the concept that the Supreme Court reaffirmed, by the way, last year. But what is happening right now in the legislatures in both Arizona and Texas is that Republicans in these states have introduced legislation or are in the process of introducing legislation saying that the, the legislature may choose the electors for the candidates that they want regardless of how the vote happens. Not on a county-by-county county basis, not on a congressional district basis, not on a statewide basis, but just however the hell the Republicans who control the legislature think it should go. And I don't think that'll stand up to a Supreme Court challenge, but it's pretty scary. Linda, thank you for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know, I just want to put a punctuation mark on this thing that Professor Wolf, Richard Wolf, and I were, were talking about just a moment ago with regard to the $1,400 checks. Many of us thought they should be $2,000 checks. Obviously, uh, Warnock and Ossoff campaigned on $2,000 checks. Well, the $1,400 plus the $600 we already got equals $2,000. So, you know, if we want to split hairs, we could say that. But, but now we're hearing this conversation. Well, the last time we means tested them. And see, this is how these things go, right? Means testing means, not to create a pun here, means testing is when you only make a benefit available, a government benefit available to people in certain income categories. Social security taxes, for example, are means tested. If you earn over $140,000 a year, you don't pay any social security tax on all the money above that amount or 120 some odd, I think it's up to maybe 130. So it's kind of a reverse means testing, right? It's a mean testing that benefits the rich. But you know, they're saying, well, okay, with the last one we said it goes to people making under $70,000 a year. This time we're thinking about taking it to people making under $50,000 a year. Republicans love means testing. And there's a reason why. It's not that means testing actually saves money. I believe it was Tim Kaine was on one of the uh, one of the MSNBC shows yesterday. And in fact, I think he was on Chris Hayes' show, as I recall, saying, um, you know, we need to means test this, uh, this money because uh, it'll save some money. If people making over $50,000 or over $70,000 a year don't get these $1,400 checks, that'll leave money that we can spend on other things. Well, there's not that many people making that kind of money. If you take out everybody making over $70,000 a year, you're, you're, you're taking out maybe a few million people, but it, it's not that much money. What you are doing, though, is creating a bureaucratic infrastructure that's going to make it harder to get those checks. People are going to have to jump through hoops to prove that they are low income. If they did have a good income and have lost it all because of the COVID, because we're looking at last year's tax returns, they're still going to get screwed. It creates general chaos, but most importantly, what means testing does is it turns programs from entitlements, essentially, everybody's entitled to this, into welfare programs. Only poor people get this. And as soon as you turn a program into a welfare program, the conservatives come along, I, I get it, you know, all the Republicans and, I, and I hand, a large handful of Democrats come along and say, Oh, but you know, rich people are getting a $1,400 check. You don't want Charles Koch to get a $1,400. Jeff Bezos getting a $1,400 check. He doesn't need that. Well, of course he doesn't need it. But the amount of time and effort and energy we're going to spend trying to filter Jeff Bezos out of the $1,400 checks is going to A, cost us more than we save, and B, you have now successfully turned this into a welfare program, which means that anytime you try to do this or anything like this in the future, you're going to have conservatives coming along saying, oh no, let's cut it down. It was $70,000 on the last one, it's going to be $50,000 on this one, let's make it $30,000 on the next one. 
If you earn over $30,000, you're good enough. You don't qualify. How about $15,000? Let's, let's put the cutoff there. I mean, this is crazy. Means testing, all and, and like, I, like I said to Richard Wolf, you know, the, the Republicans have been trying to means test Social Security forever. Back when conservatives were willing to come on this program and debate me, and sadly, it's been a long time since we found a conservative who's actually willing to come on this program and debate an issue with me, which is, I just find tragic. Not from my point of view, but you know, that they know how indefensible their positions are. But back in the days when they used to come on this program and debate me, I, you know, I'd get into debates with Stephen Moore, you know, the advisor to Donald Trump. We used to talk about this. You know, they would say, well, you know, you want to fix Social Security? Leave that cap in place so rich people don't pay into it, but take the benefits away from the rich people. Now, you know, it sounds reasonable, right? It's kind of a seductive logic. You know, does, does Jeff Bezos really need, you know, once he's 65, does he really need to get a Social Security check? Well, no, obviously he doesn't. But once you take it away from him, who else are you going to take it away from? Right? What, what's next? Okay, so, so a guy worth $100 billion, $200 billion doesn't get a Social Security check. Okay, we, I, you know, we can all say, yeah, that's a good thing. Probably. And maybe a guy over a million dollars doesn't get a check. So let's cut it down to $70,000. And then let's cut it down to $50,000. And then let's say how much net worth is. And pretty soon you've turned Social Security into a welfare program. And once you've turned it into a welfare program, then the Republicans can come along when they get power and say, oh, we're also going to turn it into block grants to the states. So those red state governors, they can just use the money however they want. They don't have to give it to the people. If there's anything, I mean, you know, there's a number of things to call your members of Congress about at 202-224-3121. Obviously, ending the filibuster is at the top of the list. But don't means test these checks should be number two. There's a couple of things I wanted to talk about or share with you, and then we'll pick up your phone calls. And, and the first has to do with the piece that I published over at TomHartman.Medium.com, and this headlined, The Republicans' Brutal Oligarchy Plot is Dangerous and Must Be Stopped Now. And then the subhead asked the question, what's more important, democracy or great wealth? You know, on this program back, I don't know, about eight or ten years ago, it was quite a while ago, we had Stephen Moore on. In fact, Stephen Moore used to regularly come on the show and debate economics with me. He kind of became too big for his britches when he became a Trump economic advisor and you know turned down our offers for him to visit. But, but I asked him a simple question when he was on. I said, which is more important, democracy or capitalism? And see, in my mind, democracy is more important because while capitalism can exist in an autocratic state, I mean, China is a capitalist state aggressively, but it's a form of capitalism that is closer to fascism, you know, that, that, that is owned by the state or merged with the state. About half of the Chinese businesses have some level of state ownership, and most of that's the, the state military. And we see that in a lot of other countries as well. Uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, you know, the, most of your Middle Eastern countries owned by either the state or the oligarchs who run the state. But his answer when I said, which is more important, democracy or capitalism, is he said capitalism. And his rationale was that capitalism makes democracy possible. Well, I think that China is proving that that's not true. 
But that philosophy, the capitalism, that wealth, that money, that, that having a billionaire class is more important than actually having democracy is at the foundation of the Republican Party's philosophy and has been openly since Ronald Reagan became president. It's, the, it's at the core, the key to the so-called Reagan revolution that we're still living in, you know, 40 years later. It has transformed America from a democracy, from a functioning democracy, into an oligarchy. Uh, and, you know, we are now at the point where of, of oligarchy in the United States, as Gillens and Page pointed out in their famous study back in 2014, that, that Princeton study, where what the average person wants almost never gets turned into legislation. Now, I think we're seeing that change right now with Biden, and he, he does seem to be going down an FDR, LBJ path in that regard, which is such a friggin' relief and is absolutely necessary to bring back democracy. But he's doing it not just over the opposition of Republican fascists and Republican oligarchs. He's doing it over the opposition of a few members of his own party who are deeply in bed with the coal industry or the banking industry or the insurance industry or you name it. And that's a very dangerous thing. Because if we reach the point where oligarchy is cemented in this country in, and, and, and claim that they're, they're simply the, the best form of capitalism, then the next step, oligarchies are inherently in, unstable. Oligarchy is where a small number of wealthy people rule the country for their benefit, not for the benefit of the people. And what happens is that when the people figure out what the hell's going on, and they have, it's why Bernie and Trump did as well as they did in primaries and general elections and everything else. When people realize this, they will turn to people who offer solutions, Bernie on offering honest solutions, Trump offering BS solutions, but both of them saying, you know, the oligarchs have taken over. And when they don't get their solutions fixed, you know, Trump for four years, all, you know, what, what was his signature achievement? Two trillion dollars in tax cuts for billionaires. And people are looking at that going, okay, I guess we're still in an oligarchy, aren't we? And that's when people start to rebel, and when people start to rebel, as we saw, for example, with the Black Lives Matter protests and others, when people start to rebel, then the state has two choices. A nation has two choices. They can either reject oligarchy and return to democracy, and typically the way they do that is by raising taxes significantly on the oligarchs and getting money out of politics. Those are the two keys to returning to democracy. Or, in order to suppress the protests, they create a police state, which is what you're seeing and what you saw, what you've seen for the last four or five months in Belarus, what you're seeing right now in Russia, what we've been watching for basically our entire lives in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, um, what we're seeing now in the Philippines with Duterte, what we're seeing in, in uh, Brazil with uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, what we're seeing with Maduro and Venezuela. See, you know, tyrants can be right-wing or left-wing or claim any affiliation they want. It's all the same thing, by and large. 
And what we're seeing right now is that this oligarchy is the direct result of the Reagan revolution, and we've got to flip this back. This is, you know, as I, as I lay out in my new book, The Hidden History of Oligarchy, American Oligarchy, this has happened twice before. The oligarchs in the South rose up and tried to destroy our nation in 1861, and that was the Civil War. We beat them, we took away their wealth, much of it, you know, Robert E. Lee's plantation got turned into Arlington National Cemetery. We won. Then they did it again in the 1920s, with the Roaring Twenties and, and Harding and Coolidge and, and Hoover, and they crashed the economy, as oligarchs usually do, after they sucked us dry. Huge fortunes made during the Roaring Twenties, and average working people actually saw their wages go down, which is what happens when oligarchs run a country. And out of that crash, Franklin Roosevelt declared war on the oligarchy. And we are now here again in that same place we were at in the late 1850s and in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And, you know, the seeds of this were planted in 1976 and 78 when the Supreme Court said billionaires and corporations can own politicians. It's called free speech. Something that never before in the history of, the, of America had we ever in our wildest dreams even imagined was possible. So we've got to fight back on this. We've got to do something about this. I'll go through the, the bullet points essentially of what oligarchies typically do and where we're at on that spectrum and how people can fight back right after the break. I also want to get into uh, you know this kerfuffle between Joe Manchin and Kamala Harris. And should Manchin be primaried, really? Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Here on the Tom Hartman Program, your media support group for We the People. We'll be right back. Nine years before the oligarchs of the South declared war against the North because they wanted to preserve slavery. In fact, they wanted to impose slavery in the North. Many of these guys that these monuments have been built to just came right out and said it. Nine years before that began, Frederick Douglass gave a speech saying, what to the slave is the 4th of July? A good and important question. It continues to be a question because slavery is still legal in the United States. The 13th Amendment said that slavery can only exist under the color of law. If somebody is, is charged or convicted of a crime, then they can be held as a slave. And it's still going on in the United States. In fact, it's the main reason why we have more prisoners than any other country in the world, free labor. And then on top of that, we find that the police departments that get more 1033 equipment, they kill more people. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Marie in Hemlock, Michigan. Marie, you're on the air. Hi. I would like to talk about what position to run for if you're just starting out. Mm -hmm. I was inspired to run for office by Bernie Sanders. I had been a lifelong independent, but I ran for precinct delegate. I live in a rural community. That position is open all across this nation. So progressives, if you're interested, please fill these because you get voting rights. You can go to the state convention. I ran as a writing candidate. 
and in the state of Michigan, you only you only have to win that position by one vote. Mm-hmm. And a great place to start is to just go to your city. If you live in a city, go to the city council meeting. If you live in a rural community, go to your township meetings. And if you can't go to the meetings, start reading the minutes. And it's real simple to run as a writing candidate, or you can actually get your name on the ballot. I did have a question, Tom. I don't know if you know this or not, but I've tried to research this, and I've asked a few people, and nobody seems to know the answer, at least here in Michigan. If that position is vacant, whether or not you can be appointed to that position or how to go about doing that. That depends on the rules of your party and your state. Each state, there's a general consistency across the states in the Democratic Party about how this works, but there are individual variations, and so that would depend on, you'd have to check the rules in Michigan there. Yeah. yeah. In the state of Michigan, there, the precinct delegate positions, especially in our rural communities, are vacant. So if you are a progressive mm-hmm. and you live in, in a rural community, you know, that position is open and it needs to be filled and we welcome you. Yeah. And let me emphasize what, what you're saying here, Marie, because you are so spot on and God bless you for doing it, because that is actually the most powerful political position in America. The precinct delegates and the precinct committee persons are the ones who who help write the platform for the party both you know, at the local yeah. level and can contribute to and, and modify the platform at the state level, which becomes the national platform for the Democratic Party. They help pick who are going to be the primary candidates. So you know, even if you're going to have five people in the primary, if they're all progressives, hey, we win. Uh, you know, and, and the Republicans have fine-tuned this. I mean, the Tea Party basically took over the precinct committee positions back in 2008 and 2009 across the nation. This is how I learned about it, was because I got solicit. I got one of these solicitations because I'm on so many, you know, Republican email lists. I got one of these solicitations from this group that uh, I think is called the Concord Coalition that was sending out videos to Republicans all across the country, begging them, begging conservative Republicans and reactionaries to become precinct committee persons. And so I started talking about it for Democrats, and and you answered the call, Marie. God bless you, and Marie. Thanks again so much for 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 calling in and for the work you're doing. Thank you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. So just to wrap up this rant, these are the core ingredients. And again, I published this over on Medium.com of the things that an oligarchic government always does. You can see this in Russia, you can see this in Hungary, you can see this in the Philippines, you can see Bolsonaro's doing this right now in Brazil. You can see the Duda has, is about three quarters of the way down this road in Poland right now. These are the things that are being argued for by right-wing parties in Europe. This is just how they do it. Number one, they change the laws and regulations so that their rich buddies can control the media. Every newspaper, radio station, and television station of any consequence in Hungary right now is owned by friends of Viktor Orban. Number two, they stack the courts and the regulatory agencies, you know, like the EPA and the FCC and that sort of thing, plus the federal court system, with oligarch-friendly ideologues or even outright corrupt toadies while massively eliminating the protections that regulations provide for average people. Protections against your air and water being poisoned, your food being poisoned, you know the list, right? Number three, they cut taxes on the rich while criminalizing and cracking down on dissent. By the way, does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this sound like exactly what happened over the last four years? Number four, They distract voters from their own looting by demonizing minorities and encouraging racism and regionalism. Like I said, this is nothing new. This is Machiavelli 101. This is, you know, Italy in the 1920s with Mussolini. This is Germany in the 1930s with Hitler. This is Spain in the late 1930s with, oh, what's his name? The guy who ran Spain. You you know what I'm talking about. So, okay, next. They actively suppress the vote among people inclined to oppose them, typically minorities and the young, or outright rig the vote to ensure their own victory. And finally, they transform their nations. Ultimately, this is like the the final stage of oligarchy where it flips into tyranny. They transform their nations into police states to put down the inevitable rebellions as people realize what's happening. The Reagan administration, the first and second Bush administrations, and the Trump administrations have all championed and executed in their own ways every single one of these steps. In fact, the criminalizing opposition, you can take back to Nixon with his so-called war on drugs. And so what do we do? Well, the key to reversing oligarchy, to breaking oligarchy, as I lay out in, in my new book, the key to this is proving once again to people that government can be a force for good. Because you see, in an oligarchy, government only works for the oligarchs. And the people know that. And so they become very cynical. They tend not to vote. They disengage. They say, ah, oh, screw politics. You know, I want to follow sports. Or, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, go learn music or something. But, you know, d- don't talk to me about politics because I know it's all BS and it doesn't work. So you have to bring them back into politics. And the way you do that is by making the government work again for the average person. And just putting a Democrat in the White House and giving the Democratic Party you know, marginal control of the House and Senate isn't enough to break the Reagan-Bush-Bush-Trump oligarchy that we have right now. 
And it's not enough to prevent the eventual transition if we get in 2024 Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz as our president. Not enough to prevent the the transition in that case into full-blown tyranny, back to the police state. Because, you know, you and I both know, we have no doubt. That's that's exactly what these guys would do because it's what they were advocating on the floor of the Senate on January 6th. So we have to stop this trend. And the main way to stop this trend, given that oligarchy is ruled by the rich, is reduce the wealth of the rich, number one, by going back to the top tax rates that we had prior to Reagan. The top tax rate when Reagan came into office, the top tax bracket, had a rate of 74%. Now, you had to make a hell of a lot of money to get there. And that discouraged people from taking home that much money and caused them to leave that money in their business and pay their employees well. It's why the middle class was growing faster than the richest were in 1979. But by 1981, 1982, everything had changed. So, number one, we need to get money out of politics, which means legislatively and perhaps even with a constitutional amendment, reversing Citizens United and doing away with this doctrine that money is the same thing as speech and therefore when billionaires and corporations own politicians, that's protected by the First Amendment. We need to throw out that BS argument that Lewis Powell and others made on the Supreme Court. Number one. And number two, we need to pass legislation that re-regulates cash in politics. We need nationally funded elections funded by you and me, by the taxpayers. I mean, there's a huge history behind this. In American history, this is our third brush with oligarchy. And like I said, I laid out my new book, but the book or not, this is what we need to do. And this is why we need to be leaning on Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to end the filibustering to the Tom Hartman program. And I'll give you my thoughts on primary and Joe Manchin right after the break, and then we'll pick up your phone calls or stick around. We'll be right back. The hidden history of American oligarchy reclaiming our democracy from the ruling class. In this book, I trace the history of the struggle against oligarchy from America's founding to the United States' war with the feudal Confederacy to President Franklin Roosevelt's struggle against economic royalists who wanted to block the New Deal. In each of those cases, the oligarchs lost the battle. But with increasing right-wing control, we're at a crisis point. Want to know more? You can sign up for virtual book events. The Seattle Town Hall virtual event is Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. And the Books and Books virtual event in conversation with David Corden is Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. The links are all over at TomHartman.com. I noticed a thread this morning over on Democratic Underground that basically said, you know, what kind of crazy idiot wants to primary Joe Manchin just because he's like holding up things like ending the filibuster, just because he's like voting with the Republicans instead of the Democrats. He's a Democrat in a solid red state. I mean, you don't want to give that up, do you? And I just wanted to point out that in the West Virginia primary, And I'm talking 2016 here when Bernie ran against Hillary Clinton. In that primary, Bernie won by 15 points. What happens is when you have a state like West Virginia where government broadly doesn't work for the people, it's been taken over by oligarchs, it turns into a red state because of right-wing radio and all this other kind of stuff. But basically, what you have are people who are very dissatisfied with the state of things. 
because they're screwed. You know, they're poor. The you know coal is going away. They got nothing new to replace it, and and. It's not that they're saying that people in West Virginia are sitting around saying, gee, I wish we had a, a Democratic senator who votes with the Republicans, uh, you know, a percentage of the time. Or, you know, I like Republicans. I mean, I realize Jim Justice, their governor, he was elected as a Democrat. He changed to Republican during the Trump uh, hysteria. What they're, what they're most vulnerable to, people in West Virginia, is populism. This is why Trump carried... In the primary, in the Republican primary, Trump carried West Virginia with 77% of the vote because he said he was going to bring back the jobs from overseas. He was going to give everybody in the state low-cost health care, better than Obamacare. And he was going to raise taxes on rich people. Those were the three main things that Donald Trump campaigned on in addition to building the wall, which was a variation of, I'm going to make sure you have a job. I realize that there was a big chunk of racism in there, and there's a lot of racists in West Virginia, as there are everywhere in the United States. But in my opinion, I'm not arguing in favor of primarying Joe Manchin. I am hopeful that he can be reformed. I am hopeful that he will wake up and realize the kind of damage he's doing. And I think that, you know, deep down inside, Joe Manchin's probably a decent guy. I mentioned the other day, I've met him a few times, but I, I don't really know him at all. But that said, if somebody was to primary him, if that person was basically a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren kind of progressive, I think they could win in West Virginia. And the proof of that is just, you know, I'm mean, looking at, at how well Bernie did in West Virginia on that message. So I'll leave it at that. I don't want to turn that into some kind of huge debate, but I did want to weigh in on it. But I'm generally speaking, I'm not a fan of primary and Democrats, period. But, you know, hey, if Joe Crowley, who was the third most powerful Democrat in the House of Representatives, had not been basically serving corporate interests rather than his voters, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would not have been able to beat him. Because he was in a you know, semi-conservative. Hey, it wasn't a red district, obviously. It was a very blue district. But, you know, they had, you know, they've always elected a conservative, you know, a kind of conservative Democrat. Isn't that, isn't that how it should be? No, not necessarily. Anyhow, Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? So your question is, what's more important, democracy or capitalism? So I'll remind you that probably the most famous dissent in constitutional jurisprudence history is Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote in Lochner versus New York, the Constitution is not intended to embody any particular economic theory. There you go. So what does that tell you? Okay, so obviously uh, <laughs> the democracy is more important than any economic theory, and that's I mean, I think that's one of the best-known dissents in Supreme Court jurisprudence. So the other thing I want to talk to you about, Tom, is the attack on the Capitol, the riot of January 6th. I thought of it in these terms, uh, I guess I was thinking about it, because Trump wants, Trump's lawyers want to argue about the election of November 3rd. That's an important distinction, because the attack on the Capitol had nothing to do with the election of November 3rd. It's directly related to the election of December 14th. And that was the voting of the electors. 
No one ever, no Republicans ever said there was anything wrong with that election. Right? The, mm-hmm. the election of November 3rd may have informed the slate of electors, but there was nothing wrong or unconstitutional or anything that could possibly have been described as an irregularity. And this was an attack in two ways. And it was an attack of the executive branch of the United States on the Congress while in session and while doing the business of the several states. So it was therefore an attack of the federal government upon the states. I think right, that it, was an, it, article. it was an Article Two attack on Article One on the Article One branch. Yes, that's absolutely right. Which I think demands, and again, since these uh, these rioters, these uh, insurrectionists, were attacking a, a constitutional process, uh, had nothing to do with any irregularities that may have been in any one given state of elections and whatever they've claimed about signatures not being verified had nothing to do with that. That's all that was all said and done when the electors agreed to go to their state capitals, sign their names to those ballots. All of that was moot and irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, this was an attempt to overturn the Electoral College. You're absolutely right, Paul. Paul, uh, thank you very much for the call. And uh, Sean, I'm going back to hybrid one right now. It's 45 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program. Uh, Fair and only slightly unbalanced. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm um, calling because I'm extremely concerned about free speech issues and the building police state. We'll wrap up with the police state. But I'm afraid that the left and so many of the media and people are having concerns about Congresswoman Green's opinions in free speech versus prohibited free speech, which is the threatening element. You can't use free speech to threaten somebody. And that and breaking rules, you know, if you threaten somebody and then you just break house rules, okay, they're punishable and they're unacceptable. But again, her opinions are her opinions, and that's why her district elected her. So I consider it to be a very slippery slope that we're talking about, and that's why I am really calling. We cannot conflate free speech and opinions with prohibited free speech. So I'm just going to just wrap it up this way. The January 6th event is going to actually last a long time, and my concerns are it's going to end up weakening the first, diminishing the Fourth Amendment protections, and it's going to further condition the left, us, me, you, maybe, into accepting more militarization of our police and authorities. And my concern is if we bounce this woman because we don't like her opinions and her free speech, then, you know, maybe you're next. And when I say you, I mean free speech TV and you being a JFK truther. The very odd thing in our government is that sometimes the wrong parties do the unexpected things with Nixon doing the EPA, Clinton doing the welfare reform. I have no doubt 
okay, that if anything Robin, changes... nobody is suggesting that Marjorie Taylor Greene should be arrested or imprisoned for the things that she has said. Yes, there's a movement to kick her out of Congress, but it's not going to succeed. What they're trying to do is deny her committee positions. If, if she worked at, at my local uh, CVS pharmacy or at the Target store down the street, and she had publicly said that she thought it would be a good idea if her boss had a bullet put in his forehead. Do you think that they would continue to keep her in that workplace? Tom, that's prohibited free speech. She can't do that. That's that, already been prohibited. But that's, that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene said, uh, endorsed with regard to Nancy Pelosi, her boss, essentially. Punish her for that. Uh, Punish, Tom, punish her for that. Punish her well, that's for that. what we're I'm talking about, okay taking, her, taking away her committee assignments. Nobody's talking about shutting no, her up. No, she's got one of the no, biggest Tom. microphones in the country. You and I are talking about her right now. She's, she's on radio and TV agree. constantly. Tom. Tom, I don't agree. I'm getting email after me, email from left groups all over the place, and they're talking about uh, inhibiting this person's political free speech. Okay, I understand nonsense. the congressional committees. Robin, Robin I, I nonsense. I, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it at all. We've got Nazis. I mean, the, the ACLU went to the bat, went to bat for the American Nazi Party because they wanted to march through the through the most Jewish part of, of Chicago you know, with their Nazi flags. Uh, we have free speech in the United States, but when somebody in a workplace advocates killing other people in that same workplace, the people in that workplace have a right to stand up and say, you know, I think at the very least, we should slap this person's hand. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination by Lamar Waldron and me. This is from the introduction. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, triggered cover-ups by officials that continue to negatively impact American politics, life, and foreign policy. Legacy of Secrecy details those cover-ups and hidden investigations, many for the first time, including the reasons they were carried out under such intense secrecy. Most were spawned by John and Robert Kennedy's top-secret 1963 plan to stage a coup against Fidel Castro, a plan so highly classified that it only started to be exposed in 2005 and is fully, finally, revealed in this book. Their own confessions now show that three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, Santo Traficante, and Johnny Roselli, were behind JFK's assassination. They used parts of the secret coup plan to kill JFK in a way that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and high CIA official Richard Helms to withhold critical information not only from the public and the press, but also from each other and sometimes their own investigators. It's important to keep in mind that JFK was murdered just a year after the tense nuclear standoff during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main goals of U.S. officials were to prevent a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets and to protect JFK's ally high up in the Cuban government. Commander Juan Almeida, head of the Cuban army in 1963, still listed as Cuba's number three official today. While U.S. leaders have managed to prevent a confrontation with Russia and preserve a critical ally in the Cuban government, this limited the investigation into JFK's murder, allowing the three mafia chiefs and their associates to remain free. As a result, the long shadow of secrecy surrounding both JFK's murder and the coup plan 
set the stage for the murder of Martin Luther King, ultimately driving two presidents from office and bringing about the murders of five congressional witnesses in the mid-1970s. Legacy of Secrecy breaks important new ground in key areas, detailing for the first time Louisiana Godfather Carlos Marcello's clear confession to ordering JFK's assassination. Marcello's criminal empire ranged from Dallas to Memphis, and previously secret files at the National Archives have shown that he made this confession in 1985 to an FBI informant ruled credible by a federal judge <clears throat> as part of a secret FBI undercover sting operation named Camtex. Exposed here for the first time, Cantex yielded Marcello's admission that he'd met Lee Harvey Oswald and set Jack Ruby up in business in Dallas. The operation also generated hundreds of hours of heretofore secret prison audio tapes of Marcello discussing his crimes, recorded using the FBI informant's bugged transistor radio. Yet the FBI and Justice Department withheld most of that information from the public and Congress for years until its revelation in this book. Carlos Marcello wasn't the only mob boss who confessed his involvement in JFK's murder to a trusted associate. Legacy also uncovers important new information about Marcello's partners in JFK's assassination, Tampa Godfather Santos Traficanti and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Las Vegas and Hollywood. Shortly before their deaths, both mobsters admitted their roles in JFK's murder to their attorneys. Two of their associates with documented ties to the secret JFK Almeida coup plan likewise confessed. Using exclusive new information supported by FBI files apparently withheld from Congress, this book names two of the Georgia men who paid James Earl Ray to kill the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, white supremacist Joseph Miltier and Hugh R. Spake. Miltier, who had been involved in Marcello's murder of JFK, was part of a small clique of racists in Atlanta who used Marcello to broker the contract to murder Dr. King. We document James Earl Ray's ties to Marcello's heroin swing smuggling operation and long overlooked evidence in FBI files linking Ray to Marcello's associate, Johnny Roselli. Finally, this book explains why Ray, while fleeing to Canada the day after killing Dr. King in Memphis, made a 400-plus mile detour south to Atlanta where he contacted Spake to get help from Miltier. In 1979, the last congressional committee to investigate the murders of JFK and Dr. King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, concluded, quote, that Traficante, like Marcello, had the motive, means, and opportunity to assassinate President Kennedy, end of quote from the congressional report. The HSCA had been created in the wake of Roselli's sensational murder, but the HSCA was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. And the same was true for Traficante and Roselli, because the CIA, FBI, and other federal agencies withheld so many relevant files. The HSCA, headed by civil rights figure Louis Stokes, also concluded there was a likelihood of conspiracy in the assassination of Dr. King, and that financial gain was James Earl Ray's primary motivation. But they were unable to determine who had paid Ray, or how the conspiracy had worked, because the FBI and other agencies had hid critical files. With the help of more than two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy, backed up by thousands of recently released documents at the National Archives, many of which are quoted here for the first time, Legacy tells the full story denied to Congress and the American people, Legacy of Secrecy. And welcome back. I just had a fellow say, well, you know, you're trying to inhibit Marjorie Taylor Greene's free speech. <laughs> Seriously. 
No, nobody's trying to stop her from speaking. When people say things that incite violence, when people encourage violence, when people promote hate speech against specific groups, in this case, Jews and others, but, you know, specifically, oh, is the Jewish death ray from outer space is causing the California fires. You know, this whole QAnon thing, much of it is grounded in old line anti-Semitic theory. When people do that, people in their workplace have a right to say no. If Marjorie Taylor Greene worked at the Target store down the street or at your local, you know, piggly wiggly supermarket and started talking about shooting the store manager in the forehead or that Howie over there, the Jewish guy, his buddies were really the ones who started the California forest fires. She would not be working at the piggly wiggy, wiggly, whatever you call that, that supermarket. You know, it would just be the end of it. Come on. Eric in Washington, D.C. Hey, Eric, what's up? Yeah, Tom, real quick. There is no longer three TV stations in order to regulate. And so there is no applicability of the fairness document in this current environment any longer. This couldn't be. It could not be regulated in such a way. So the only way I think it can be approached is to regulate it through platform guidelines for user standards. Right. You must tell people the types of things they can say and in that way, educate the users. Right. Which is happening right now, Eric. There are certain words that if I were to say on the air and I'm not talking about obscenities, I'm talking about issue words that if I were to say on the air right now, we're carried live on YouTube, they would demonetize our stream or they might even take it down. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Facebook, which carries us live. Twitter carries us live. You Mm -hmm. know, there are boundaries and they bounce people off regularly, typically on the right, Mm -hmm. because it's the right wingers who seem to be calling for this stuff. But I'm with you. And there's no magic solution to this. This is a right-wing infrastructure that they started building in 1972 after the Powell memo came out. It's taken them 40 years to get to where they are. It's going to take a decade or so for progressives to build our own infrastructure, our own, you know, although it's growing, you know, I mean, our show is growing. The Progress Channel on Sirius XM, which you're listening to right now, Eric, is growing. I'm not, frankly, worried about this. I'm concerned about the consequences of the lies out there, but I'm not worried about this. Eric, thanks so much for the call. And thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, keep your eyes open, your ears open, and uh, you know, be alert uh, to what's going on. And know that democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy requires you and me and all of us together working as citizens of this republic. So get out there, get active, tag, you're in. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.